king. This is the kind of thing that God alone can do. And Psalm 118 is a psalm of thanksgiving, and it's a fitting psalm for Palm Sunday. It's a a liturgical expression of that triumphal entry, as it were. And as we read this together, which we will do, notice that there are bold parts for you to read responsively with me, and so participate with me in this reading. As we read it, think of the rescue of God's people Israel and the exodus from Egypt, and their subsequent trusting of Yahweh in the face of their enemies in the midst of their wilderness wanderings and their eventual arrival and entry into Mount Zion, there would be a greater fulfillment of this historical reality on the day that Jesus entered into Jerusalem. And this psalm leads us there. This is Psalm 118. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say... His steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, His steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, His steadfast love endures forever. Out of my distress I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. All nations surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me, surrounded me on every side. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They went out like a fire among thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. I was pushed hard so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord has done mighty things. The right hand of the Lord is lifted high. The right hand of the Lord has done mighty things. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but He has not given me over to death. Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless You from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and He has made His light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords, up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give thanks to You. You are my God, I will extol You. O give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but these words of our God will stand forever. Father, we pray that You would grant to us understanding. Would You give to us Your Spirit as we, Your people, listen to Your Word Work in our hearts. Let us grow by Your grace 
and change and become more and more like your Son even today, we pray in His name. Amen. You may be seated. This psalm is the end of a sequence of six psalms that were sung around the Passover meal by Israelite families. Once a year, they would gather together as a family and commemorate the exodus, their exit from Egypt, from the bondage of slavery, from which God delivered them through the hand of Moses. And they would remember what happened on that evening when they were led out to freedom in Christ, looking forward to Him in faith. On that evening, the people of Israel gathered in Egypt in their homes as God commanded them around a simple meal, unleavened bread. They didn't have time for yeast to rise. They were in a hurry. It was going to happen quickly. Unleavened bread and bitter herbs and wine and a lamb. And they gathered together and ate this meal knowing that the angel of death was coming. The judgment of God was coming upon Egypt And this angel, this death, this judgment would pass over every home upon which the blood of the Lamb was spread on the doorpost outside the door. They were spared by grace and they knew it. And for ages to come, these psalms, once they were written, would be sung around this Passover meal. Psalm 113 and 114 would be sung at the beginning of the meal. And then Psalms 115 to 118 would be sung at the end of the meal to commemorate this Passover salvation that God had brought to His people through Moses. The people would gather together as a family and remember that God has been unfolding a story throughout the ages. A story in which you and I have a part even today because of the steadfast love of the Lord for which this psalm gives thanks. You know, if, as Hebrews says, the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves, then this psalm is likewise a shadow. It's a shadow of the triumphal entry, and Matthew 21 is the reality itself. The crowds were shouting as Jesus entered into Jerusalem on the the back of a donkey, the foal of a donkey. The crowds were shouting out, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They were reciting this psalm. Because this psalm was on their minds for Passover. It was already there. They were thinking, this is Passover week. These are the psalms that we remember and recite and sing together And they sang and called out to him this psalm as he entered into the city. Jesus had said no to this for a long time. You know, as you read through the scriptures, through the gospels and see, whenever he would heal someone, he would tell them, now don't don't tell anybody this because my time has not yet come. He wasn't yet ready to proclaim himself king. Oh, he already was king, but he knew that once he proclaimed himself king, The rubber would meet the road, so to speak. He had been saying no to this for a long time, but now he comes riding into Jerusalem with people reciting Scripture in his path. Now, the irony is that the Jewish mamas are out at the market buying lambs for the Passover feast. And as they do so, the Lamb of God 
comes entering into the city looking for the feast. There's the, the dramatic irony of what's unfolding here, and this psalm helps us to see it. The Lamb of God was coming to show one great truth, and that is that the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever indeed. God had proclaimed His steadfast love, His covenant love for His people ages before, and now here it comes. The covenant promises of God are being fulfilled as He brings rescue and righteousness and rejoicing to His people. This psalm begins with a a simple little introductory stanza that sets the theme. And the dinner song then recalls the need for God's rescue. Verse 5, Out of my distress I called on the Lord, and He answered me and set me free. Those simple words are a reflection on what happened at the very beginning of the book of Exodus. Maybe you remember this. Moses had grown up in the house of Pharaoh, his daughter anyway, and, and had eventually killed an Egyptian who was abusing one of his Israelite brothers, a slave. Moses was not a slave. He was a privileged son of the house of the powerful. But he killed this Egyptian, and knowing the consequences that would come, he fled to Midian. He fled for his own safety, and for 40 years he knew the life of a shepherd, and he married and had his own family and tribe around him there, adopted son as he was there as well. And then at the beginning of Exodus, these words we find, the people of Israel groaned, Because of their slavery and cried out for help, their cry for rescue came up to God and God heard their groaning and remembered His covenant. These are the words that we find at the beginning of Exodus. God's people needed rescue. For 40 years, Moses had been gone. But for those 40 years and for ages before that, they had known slavery and bondage at the hands of the powerful, and now their cry has come up before God for rescue, and He hears their cry and remembers His covenant. His people needed rescue, and so do you, and so do I. Um, you know, you have a story. This, this is the unfolding of God's redemptive historical story throughout the ages of which we are a part, and you have your own little story. Lots of stories. Your story is made up of all kinds of pieces and parts. This week I saw an article, some of you saw it as well, by Dan Allender, who is a a theologian, a counselor, a professor of theology, and and he's fascinated by the notion of our stories and the narrative that, that God is unfolding even in our own lives. And he points out the importance of our knowing our own story because you experience In this broken world, all kinds of fragments and bits and pieces of joy and suffering, of gladness and anguish, and all of it together is a reflection of what Jesus has done for you in bringing rescue. His rescue for you brings a new courage. Verse 6, the Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Oh, man can do a lot to you. Candy, you, you know that. I know you know by your own experience that man can do a lot to you. Men and women can cause all kinds of damage. Children, boys and girls can cause all kinds of, 
affliction in the lives of those around us, man can do a lot to you. I mean, think of your greatest enemy. Who's your greatest enemy? You think of even even reflecting back on parts of your story that you look back on in your past. When I was in the sixth grade, my brother was in the eighth grade, two years ahead of me. My brother was six foot four in the eighth grade. I was never six foot four, and I never will be. But he was six foot four in the eighth grade. Nobody wouldn't mess with him. There were kids that didn't like him for whatever reason, but they wouldn't make it known because he was six foot four. Well, one day at lunch, another eighth grader who didn't like my brother much saw me and said, Ah, you're his brother. Come on out here and let's wrestle. He wanted a piece of my brother. He wasn't going to go for that, so he came for me. And I can remember the rest of that day, I had grass all in my hair, and I was all disheveled because of the way this wrestler threw me down and and threw me around, taking me down on account of my brother. Later on, my brother said, I hear you wrestled on the field outside after lunch. Way to go. Thanks, brother. I appreciate that. You know, who is your potentially most fearsome foe? Is it the eighth grade bully? Is it the IRS? Is it your spouse? Who's your potentially most fearsome foe? Is it, is it the demons that you maybe consider might wander in the depths and the darkness of your hallways at night? Is it Satan himself? Is he your potentially most fearsome foe? No, this, this psalm would correct any of those misconceptions and tell you that your most potentially fearsome foe is God himself. I mean, my brother was six foot four. If he had been with me at that moment, that wrestler would never have approached me. And that's what this psalmist wants you to recognize. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. Sticks and stones may break my bones, and words will crush my spirit. But my potentially biggest foe is not my foe. He's my friend. In fact, he's my refuge. The Israelites were in Egypt. I mean, they're reflecting back on the Pharaoh who was, well, the king of the world. In fact, he called himself God. He was a fearsome foe. He had the power of life and death at his command. For anyone that he didn't like, he could simply put them to death. The Israelites were remembering this fearsome foe and for them to come out of Egypt saying, I'm not afraid. What can man do to me? It's, it's really an absurd statement for them to reflect back on and say. But the narrative of the life of the people of God tells them that every Passover, they could remember that there was a more fearsome foe than even Pharaoh. And one who was not their foe at all, but rather provided refuge for them. And that refuge led them to a new, fix, a new fixation. Verse 10 What does he say? He says, he's remembering, all the nations surrounded me. Verse 11, they surrounded me on every side. Verse 12, they they surrounded me. They swarmed around me like bees. Verse 13, they pushed me back until I was about to fall. What nations is he talking about? Well, Egypt. You know, they're remembering Egypt for sure. Egypt played a pivotal role in their narrative, their story. But he's remembering more than that. The Edomites and the Moabites and the Amorites and the Canaanites you know, all the ites that they faced Israel on their way to the 
promised land during their wanderings. And they did what you and I do. You know, remember about history last week, we saw that if we look back on history and we go back into history, into the shoes of those who came before us, what we realize is that we're actually more like them than we are different. We're just like these Israelites. As they write and read and sing this psalm, Because we fix our attention on what we fear, don't we? That's just what we do in the context of a fallen and broken world. What do you fear? What are you afraid of? What are the things that you fix your attention on? You know, maybe it's that your children will reject the faith. Parents all fear that. They they all wonder, when will that day come? Will it come? Maybe it'll come. I'm kind of nervous. I wonder if my kids might reject the faith and walk away. And so, you know, you're tempted to press them for right behaviors, behaviors that might indicate that something is going on, even if you're not so sure that it is. Or you press them for right words that make you at least sleep peacefully at night, knowing, well, at least they said those words because you're afraid. Maybe you fear that your husband or your wife or your friend will become unlikable in some way that you particularly are concerned about. And so you begin to drop hints and and, and lead in implications and directions about how they could better conform to your liking and be the person that you want for them to be because you're afraid. Or maybe you're afraid that your career will will stall out in your progress as you make your way in climbing up the ladder, whichever ladder you're climbing, will stall out for whatever reason, maybe because of your own failure or maybe because of the injustice of those more powerful than you. And so you're tempted to disregard common courtesy and humility and you become a self-promoting, self-marketing machine with no regard for those around you, only concerned with your own progress because you're afraid. But the rescue of the gospel takes your gaze away from your fear and it places it somewhere else. What else does the psalmist say in these verses? He says, well, they surrounded me, these nations, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is with me. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. The Lord has become my salvation. You know, Jesus' entry into Jerusalem came about in a way that was a total disappointment for anyone who didn't get this part of the gospel. That is that the gospel fixates your your attention on something other than your fear. How did he come into Jerusalem? He came in such a humble way. He came in a way that would demonstrate the proverbial words of verses 8 and 9 about princes and men and trusting in the Lord instead. You know, if you have access to power, beware what power you seek for your help because it will fail you. Jesus didn't come looking like a powerful one. He came as a king, yes. He came riding as a king would. And he came crossing the cloaks of the people on the path as a king would do. But he came on the foal of a donkey. He came in the humility of a savior to redirect our fixated fears, and to rescue. And to do that, he brings righteousness. To do that, he brings righteousness. Now, the whole city of Jerusalem 
as we heard moments ago from Matthew 21, was stirred up and asking, who is this? Matthew, I don't know if this is hyperbole or not. I mean, it was a small city, and it was Passover week. Things were happening. And when a well-known, you know, popular prophet would come and enter the city, well, it captured people's attention, and people were asking the question, who, who is this? I, don't, I wonder if they knew who he was. Maybe they were asking, who does he think he is doing what he's doing right now? The whole city was stirred up because this was the audacious entrance of a king. I mean, it really was, even despite the foal of a donkey. In 1 Kings chapter 1, Solomon is commanded by his father David to ride on David's mule to his anointing as king. This is what they did. They rode on a four-legged animal to get to their anointing. And, and that's what Solomon did. In 2 Kings chapter 9, Jehu becomes king of Israel. And when he's anointed king, the commanders of his army immediately lay their cloaks on the ground in homage to their new king. This was no secret to the people of Jerusalem. When a man comes riding into the city and people are laying cloaks and palm branches on the ground before him, he's kind of saying, I'm king. And this was an audacious entrance for him to make. I mean, even just before his entry into the city, two blind men called out to him, Hearing the crowds pass by and anticipating who it must have been, they called out, Son of David, have mercy on us. Now, nobody was called the Son of David. Not one man, for sure. And nobody received those words with some concern. Son of David, have mercy on us. And what did Jesus do? Yes? What do you want? In other words, I am the son of David. I am the coming king who you think that I am. And everyone heard about it, Matthew tells us. Jesus came with humility, but not modesty. I've heard other pastors mention this, this, this ironic twist to Jesus coming to us. Do you, do you recognize this as you think and reflect on the gospel accounts of how he came? He came with great humility, but absolutely no modesty. That's a trick to pull off, isn't it? That's something that we don't really get. We can't quite figure out how to be humble and not modest. What does that mean? I mean, he came on the foal of a donkey. He didn't come on a white steed. He didn't come in majestic power in that regard. He came in humility as the king of peace. But he did come across the cloaks and the palm branches. In other words... He received the acknowledgement that he is indeed king. He was not modest at all. He did not deflect the prophetic attention of the people as it came to him. He came in humility, but not modesty, because he came bearing the righteousness of God himself. Now, glad songs of salvation, the psalm remembers, are in the tents of the righteous, why? Why is it that the tents of the righteous are the ones that have glad songs of salvation? He tells us, because the right hand of the Lord has done mighty things. Now, you may remember that Exodus was followed by the law. God led his people out of Egypt, out of bondage, and then he led them to the mountain, Mount Sinai, and gave them the law, the, the Ten Commandments. In other words, people of Israel, 
This is how you must look if you're to be my people. And the law is followed by Leviticus. It doesn't get much easier. Leviticus being all the rules and regulations of how God's people are to come to him. This people is how you are to look. And this is how you are to come to me. The expectations were so high, so high, that all that an Israelite really could ultimately do was look forward to the Passover meal. And they did that once a year. All they really could do was look forward to the Passover meal. The family would gather together around the the unleavened bread and the bitter herbs and the wine and the lamb. And the dad would surely say something like this. Okay, wife, sons, daughters, gather around. Once again, we don't have the righteousness that God requires. We know what the Ten Commandments are. We know what Leviticus says about approaching God. And we don't have it. So spread the blood on the doorposts and God have mercy. Ultimately, that's all that they could do. And so the mighty things that God's hand has done are many, but the mightiest one, perhaps, is this. To make it so that verses 17 and 18 can be whispered after verse 16. I shall not die, but I shall live. He has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. These are words that Jesus could take on to his own lips within days of his triumphal entry. And they are words that you can live by in faith even today because the one who came, came through the gates. This is a psalm of a processional liturgy leading to the temple. And you know, it might have been used in that way as well. The, the leader calling out, as he does here, open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter in. And a response comes from those inside. This is the gate of the Lord. Do you know what you're asking? This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. It's a hint of of drama here because you, you can't just go in. I mean, remember Mount Sinai and Leviticus. You can't just walk in. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous will enter through this. But again, this is a shadow of the good thing. It's not the good thing itself. The thing itself has just entered into Jerusalem on a donkey. You know, there's a a parable about this sort of thing. Maybe you know this parable. Jesus said, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and many are those who go through it. But the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and few are those who find it. Now, we as fallen and naturally moralistic people, we all are, let's be honest, we hear that parable and we tend to think, okay, wide gate, Narrow gate. This is about behavior. And so if I can just behave right and squeeze myself through that narrow gate, you know, I got to narrow my behavior. I got to follow the, the straight and narrow, as we say. Then maybe I can squeeze through that narrow gate rather than having my behavior kind of all over the board and I got to go through the wide gate and it's destruction. Everybody goes there. That's just not it. I mean, that's simply not what Jesus is saying at all. That's simply not the point of the parable. At all, And we know it because of what else Jesus said about himself in John chapter 10. 
You know, all those I am statements, I am this, I am that. What did he say? He said, I am the gate. And whoever comes through me will be saved. Enter through me. Don't squeeze yourself through some narrow moralistic behavior gate. That's not what I'm after. I am the gate, he says. And in this psalm, the gate is saying, I'm coming through the gate. I'm leading my people through the gates. I'm the one who has the righteousness to get through this gate. And here I am. Now, this is is an Old Testament dramatic liturgical expression of the doctrine of justification by faith. You know, that, that great verse in Corinthians, God made Jesus who had no sin to be sin for us so that, what? In Him we might become the righteousness of God. That's justification by faith. That that is not just a New Testament idea. The New Testament, believe it or not, got that from the Old. It got that from the Psalms. It got that from Genesis, Exodus, and Leviticus. It got it from the very beginning. This was God's covenant plan. I'll provide for you the righteousness that I require. And here it comes, riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. You know, you weren't only saved by the death of Christ. You were saved by His life. That's one of the things that that we like to ask our children when they seek admission to the communion table. Why do you need Jesus? That's a, a pretty simple question with a huge answer. And you know, we Christians, and I've said this to you before, you know this, we tend to think in terms of His death. Well, I need Jesus because He died for me. Oh, that's so true. That is so true. And without his death in our place, we would have no life. But guess what? That's only part of the story. Kids, listen, I'm giving you the answer to the question. Okay, why do you need Jesus? Oh, I need him for his death, but I need him for his life. Because he lived for me in righteousness that I can't possibly live for myself. And that's why at the communion table, I I simply can't get myself off of the words to tell you at the communion table that by faith you wear the very righteousness of Jesus as your very own for all of your days. This is your justification because he has come to the gate and he has come through it. Now, after the rescue and the righteousness comes, then rejoicing, the psalm shows us this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And what does this happen on this day that would cause us to rejoice? Well, his doing and his giving. You marvel at the one and you tell of the other. The day after his entry into Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and he challenged the religious leaders there. They were, they were questioning his authority and he answered with parables. One of them went like this. He said, he said a, a landowner planted a vineyard, and then he rented out his vineyard to some farmers. And these farmers cultivated the vineyard and and grew some crops and made some money. And then the landowner sent his servants to collect the rent. And the greedy farmers took the servants and killed them. So the landowner sent his own son to these farmers to collect the rent, thinking, well, surely they'll heed the authority of my son. And what did these these farmers do? They took his son and they killed him. And Jesus asks these religious authorities, Now, 
what do you think the, the owner of the land is going to do? And, and they hang themselves by their own noose. They said, he's going to bring those wretches to a wretched end. And they were right. And Jesus said, indeed. Indeed. Have you not read, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous. I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall. To see the expressions on their faces when he takes their Old Testament, Psalm 18, and brings it to their very answer that they willingly gave to his parable question. Have you never read, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And this is what the Lord did, and it is marvelous, fellas. They didn't think it was marvelous, I promise. They had to be furious because the religious ones reject him. The powerful ones reject him. The proud ones reject him. But the marvel of this is is not so much in their rejection, but it's in his elevation to cornerstone, capstone, the very stone that holds the entire covenant together. And it gives you something to tell about. Verse 28, the psalm goes on, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, you are my God. I will extol you. In other words, I will tell about you. I will tell of you. Why? Because of what he had given. Verse 26 The people are singing these praises as Jesus rode in. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And it's Passover week. Remember, these words are on their minds already. Already they're thinking of these words, but they're more prophetic than the people could have even known because of what comes in verse 27. A little bit cryptic, maybe. Bind the sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. Okay, listen. Blessed is he who, can, who comes, who has come in the name of the Lord. Bind the sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. Now, they didn't typically bind a sacrifice up to the horns, the extensions of the altar in the temple. They didn't necessarily bind them to it. But the, the sacrifice was bound. And here comes the one blessed in the name of the Lord. And he's come in the name of the Lord to be the sacrifice. The horns of the altar would become the arms of the cross. And so you can begin to see the drama of what what must have have occurred at the Last Supper as Jesus had his disciples gathered all together around that table for the Passover meal. The disciples must have begun to think, you know, here's that unleavened bread. Check. Here are the bitter herbs. Check. Here's the wine. Check. Check. Um, there's something missing, guys. Where's the lamb? That's kind of a big oversight. The lamb was sitting at the table. There he was, come to fulfill that supper that had taken place over all of the ages at which they had sung Psalm 118 to conclude it. And now the lamb is not on the table. The lamb is at the table. There he is, not yet spreading his blood, but soon to do so. And it's so easy to pass over this for us until you feel the weight of suffering that had to take place. I saw a video this past week online that somebody had posted. It was 
one of those kind of social experiments. In New York City, poor Manhattan always gets to be the subject of social experiments. It was a cold, freezing cold winter day, and a, and a boy, he couldn't have been more than 10 years old, standing out on the sidewalk in torn blue jeans and a torn T-shirt with a plastic trash bag and a cardboard sign, please help me, freezing. I mean, it had to be 25 degrees. There are people walking past him, crowds walking past him in their big, heavy overcoats. It's a freezing day in New York City. This boy is shivering cold. He's freezing, 10 years old. And, you know, the experiment is, who's going to help him? And the, the kind of narrative went, you know, an hour passed. No one's helped. People are just walking by. They look at him, and he's standing there freezing. After about an hour, he puts down the plastic trash bag that he's hoping for somebody to put something in to help him. And he climbs into the bag and pulls it up around him and lays down on the sidewalk, shivering. And he lays there for an hour, shivering. And I realized, I realized I was becoming angry. I was becoming so furious. I was about to jump through the computer screen. People look at him and help this boy for crying out loud. He's shivering on the sidewalk. Who's going to help him? People would walk by, look at him, and pass on by. I was, I was becoming emotionally involved. <laughs> you know, and afterwards, I, I, I began to realize what had happened. You know, at the end of the video, a homeless man, predictably, is the one who comes to the boy and, and kind of crawls up to him and says, Hey, you're cold. You're alone. What's the deal? Let me give you my coat. He takes his own coat off, puts it on the boy. I'm homeless too. I understand what your suffering is. And then the boy's brothers come out, and the experiment is over. And I'm, I'm kind of I'm very conflicted. I'm thinking, how do they brothers do this to him? But I was so angry, I began to wonder what, what was going on in me as this thing unfolded. And I began to realize that boy looked just like one of my own. And it's not until you can experience and feel the suffering that had to go on as the lamb sat at the table looking forward to his own blood being shed that you can begin to feel the weight of what happened. In that article, Dan Allender said this. He said, it's our suffering, our struggle with sin and injustice that reveals what Jesus endured for our salvation. It is the rescue of God, the surprising, life-giving wonder and awe of His goodness that proclaims the glory of the resurrection. Until you experience suffering and, and feel the weight of it, then you don't really know what that Passover meal was like. You don't really know the weight of what He carried and the value of what He gave. He gave His only Son. I mean, that's a verse we all have burned into our minds. But do we recognize the weight of it? This psalm teaches us many things. All the psalms do. They teach us to worship. They teach us to feel. They teach us to recognize the depth of our own souls. This one leads us in a liturgy. Right up to the day when the Son of God took the throne with Great humility, but with absolutely no modesty at all, so that his people might say, I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the mighty and gracious deeds of my God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. O oh Lord, thank you that you have given to us your word that you have granted to us your spirit that we might see and hear and understand. We pray 
Lord, that you would do that anew in our hearts and souls. Grant to us increased faith so that we might believe and walk in your way and indeed enter through the gate that is your Son, the gate that you have opened for us that we might have life. Would you do that in Jesus' name? Amen.